Good morning. Can we rise for the reading of the Lord's Word? I'll be reading from Luke 9, 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. As the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silence, and no one told, and no one in those days, days anything of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. All right. <clears throat> Well, just a few more things before we uh, before we get into um, before we get into the scripture today. Um, if any of you is planning a special Christmas shopping trip to either Trail or Kelowna this next week on the seventh or the eleventh, we have somebody that needs a ride to some medical appointments. Or if you want to make your plans around this, that would be even better. Uh, Oksana Betancourt uh, needs a ride to trail on December 7th and uh, on, then on December 11th to Kelowna uh, just for some follow-up appointments uh, regarding uh, some of her medical uh, concerns. So that's, uh, if anybody can, uh, can help out with that, just please contact uh, the office and we'll make the connections for you as to times and all that other stuff. Okay. Um, Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that um, as we come to your word, we hear your voice. And in our passage today is a simple command to listen to the voice of Jesus. Listen to him. And so, Lord, would we hear from you today as you uh, reveal your word to us uh, through the scripture that we read and how we think about uh, your word. Lord, speak to our hearts and speak to our lives. Thank you for what is before us. Open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what you have for your church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So last, uh, last week, Pastor Ben uh, tackled a fairly large uh, chunk uh, in Luke chapter 9, and this chunk kind of goes together with it and the key thing that is happening through Luke chapter 9 is there's kind of a transition happening from Jesus' ministry in Galilee to his journey towards Jerusalem. And a lot of what has happened in Luke so far has been setting us up for this event, for this transition. Everything has been about this question, who is Jesus and how can we know for sure that the story of Jesus is true? This is what Luke has set out to do right from the beginning. So if we go back to Luke chapter 1, we have to remember Luke has a very specific purpose in mind for writing this 
text for us. He said, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. You would be certain about who Jesus is and his identity. And this has been the question over the last, for, for most of this first eight chapters, is this question has come up multiple times. Who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this who thinks he can forgive sins? Who is this? And Luke has been answering that question from the very beginning in, in the, the conversation with the angel uh, and, and Zechariah. The angel said this. He will turn, and he's talking about Zechariah's son. He will turn many of the children of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, him, the Lord their God, in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To Mary, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now remember some of these as we hit the transfiguration and what God says about who Jesus is. And Mary and Joseph then take baby Jesus and they go to Jerusalem and he's presented at the temple and Simeon is there. And Simeon takes him and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. And Luke's been leading us to the identity of Jesus all along. In the song of Zechariah back in chapter 1, he, you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High God, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins, because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet on the way of peace. And Jesus, in his first sermon, in Capernaum or Nazareth, Nazareth, he takes the scroll of Isaiah and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so all through this, Jesus has been, Jesus himself, the angel, the revelation, and Luke has pulled all of this together so that we would not be terribly surprised in Luke chapter 9 when Peter says, you are the Christ of God. You are the chosen one. 
So we would not be surprised when the voice comes out of heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Luke has set us up for this. This great realization of who Jesus is. That we would have confidence to know who Jesus is. And you can read the story of the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 and Matthew or, or Mark chapter 9 as well. But Luke includes a very, says some details that the others ignore or, or don't, don't include. The, the, the first one, if you, would, if you would sit down and put these passages side by side, you would see that in Matthew and Mark, it says, after six days, Jesus went up on a mountain. And in Luke, it says, after about eight days, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, two things. Uh, Luke uses the word about, an approximation. Matthew, Mark say six. Luke says, yeah, about eight. We're not being exact here, okay? Don't get too caught up on that. Luke also has a propensity for the number eight. It has some meaning for him uh, that I'm not going to bother getting into today. But it is a marker denoting approximation. After eight days, after these sayings, which we just covered last week, earlier, Peter and John and James go up onto a mountain, and only Luke says this, to pray. And he was praying. Like, yet he says it twice for emphasis. Jesus is in prayer. Only Luke gives us this, this window. Oh, by the way, John doesn't include the transfiguration at all. It doesn't happen in John's gospel. But here, here is Jesus in prayer. And, and this is something, again, that is, is Luke's special emphasis, is that Jesus is always in prayer, whether it's before the temptation, before his baptism. He is constantly in prayer. Prayer is central and I think Luke wants to give us this, this, uh, this message that discerning the will of God always involves prayer. Later on, the, the disciples are going to come to him and say, hey, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. Just, just teach us to pray. And again, that's only in Luke. There's a centrality of prayer, an emphasis throughout. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became Dazzling white. And the appearance, the appearance word in, in Greek is only used a few times in the New Testament. And it refers in, in the Old Testament to the, the place of the tabernacle. There, there's, this, there, there's a likeness, there's, there's, there's a, a visualness to it. The appearance of his face was altered. And Matthew and Mark say transfigured, metamorphosized, changed from one thing to another. Luke uses a different word to a different quality. His face took on a different quality. His clothes became dazzling white. And if we look at the phrase dazzling white, we'll see it again when we get to the end of Luke when the angels appear at the tomb. It is a divine moment that is happening. And two men were talking with them, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Moses and Elijah, why these two? They are the only Old Testament figures associated with meeting God on Mount Sinai. Moses at the giving of the Ten Commandments and Elijah when he, when he fled and when he ran into the desert, when he thought he was going to die and when God visited him and, and he showed him that, you know, I'm not in the whirlwind, I'm not in the earthquake, I'm not in the fire, I'm in the still small voice. I, I'm not coming to you, Elijah, the same way that I came to Moses when this mountain was covered in fire and smoke and earthquakes and trembling and a loud voice like a trumpet. That was Moses' experience, Elijah's in the still small voice. It's this experience on this mountain with two that meet God on the mountain and here is Jesus who is in glory. And they speak of his departure. The Greek word here is literally exodus. They're talking about his exodus, his departure. And actually, we don't want to read too much into that because it was a common Jewish and Greek word used for death. Just the same as when we say that our dearly beloved has departed. Very similar, but Luke is also hinting at something here. And maybe it's not the departure or the exodus that's, that's the important thing. It's the next phrase, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The word here to fulfill is, is filled with content, to fulfill a divine command, a prophetic saying to complete or to perform that which has been assigned to him. Jesus is going to Jerusalem for a very specific reason. Remember in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus only appears, well, except for when he was 12 and when he was a baby, in Luke's gospel, in Matthew, in, in Mark as well, Jesus appears in Jerusalem one time. One time. And that's this that they're talking about. This one time he goes to Jerusalem in the three and a half years of his ministry to accomplish what God has set out for him to accomplish a new exodus for his people. In his death, there's kind of a double meaning here that, 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 that he will depart, that he will leave, that he will die. But in that death, he will bring freedom. He will part the waters. He will open a, a pathway in the desert. He will feed his people on the bread of life and the water from the rock. The exodus is about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. And this is something Luke wants us to know because only he tells us of this exodus. Matthew and Mark don't tell us about what the content of the conversation, only Luke tells us. There's a shift of focus as Jesus starts to turn his face toward Jerusalem and this will be definitively stated in chapter 9 and verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the trip to the cross. Starts in chapter 9, and all the way through Luke's gospel, we have the singular focus of Jesus marching toward the cross. 
After Peter's confession, Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Interesting, Luke leaves out Peter saying, no, never. Peter doesn't deny this as a reality that, that Jesus is taking. The denial comes later, at the, later in the story, but he doesn't include it here because he says next, if anyone therefore would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever who loses his life for my sake will save it. Or what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Peter's confession led to Jesus declaring that, that he is going to Jerusalem and he will face the cross. And out of this, he talks about the cost of discipleship. This week, as the father declares, Jesus is the, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. The very next thing, that's going to happen as we move on to this journey near the end of chapter nine is the cost of following Jesus. Discipleship is costly. It means taking up a cross and that's not a metaphor for them. That's a march to death. That's a death to self. That is a decisive laying down of my life for whatever God calls me to do and whatever he speaks to me. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but Peter and the others, they wake up and they see this and the, the two men and, and they're about to leave and Peter's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, it's so good for us to be here. Let's make three tents and one for you, Moses and Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. Of course he didn't know what he was saying. This is Peter we're talking about. <laughs> right? I, I, I love how often we kind of kind of put ourselves in the story and we, we would never do that if we were there. Like, no, we would, okay? We definitely would. We definitely would misunderstand the whole situation. What, what, Peter, what Pete, he wants to freeze the moment right here. He, he wants to hang on to this experience. He, he doesn't want to let this go. I mean, how many of us would, I don't know, what was your favorite point on, you know, when your kids were young or when they were teenagers or, you know, wouldn't you like to just, oh, that period of parenting was the easiest. <laughs> well, you probably forgot some things then. <laughs> it's all hard. But sometimes, you know, we, we want to freeze the moment. We want to hang on to a moment in time or, or we want to go back and, and relive a significant event, but, but it's just not possible. We had three movies in the 80s that told us it's a bad idea to go back in time and try to change things. <laughs> back to the future, one, two, and three, right? It's just a bad idea. He wants to hang on to this moment. He wants to freeze it. But as soon as he says it, there's an interruption. I love this. As he was saying these things, now you, can't, you, couldn't put this, you can't put this in a text so well unless you kind of just cut off his sentence like with three dots and just said, hey, Lord, it's good for us. Let's make three tents. This is my son. Just interrupts him. My chosen, listen to him. As he was saying these things, the crowd, crowd, crowd 
overshadowed them. It's the same verb as used in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, when the cloud came down and filled the tabernacle so that nobody could go in. The glory of God was so thick, Moses couldn't go into the, into the tabernacle. The glory of God came down and surrounded them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is like, this is Exodus, Mount Sinai, imagery again saying, this is my son. This is my son. And the, the, the sonship language goes back to Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 and, and ancient Near Eastern thought where the, the anointed divine king on earth was the son of God. And you can go to Egyptian uh, 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 thought on this. And many ancient Near Eastern kings took this on themselves that, that the identity of, uh, of the king was, was rooted in his connection with whatever God. And so the king was viewed as a son of God. And so this is a very stock ancient Near Eastern uh, idea here. This is my son. This is my divinely appointed king. My chosen one. And this is a verb, actually. It's, it's a partible, uh, participle. Uh, the, the one whom I have chosen. And this goes back to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud nor lift up his voice nor make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will be faithful to bring justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He is the chosen one. Therefore, listen to him. This is my son. This is my divinely appointed king, my chosen one. We go back, like in Psalm chapter 2, it's talking about the Davidic king is always God's appointed and, and, and anointed and chosen one. If you go back in the story, the first king was Saul, who the people chose, and David was the king whom God chose. And the voice spoke this, and Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. But this made a lasting impression on Peter, James, and John, and both Peter and John in their letters refer to this event. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says, we were with him on the mountain, we saw his glory. And John repeatedly says, that which we have touched with our hands, seen with our eyes, heard with our ears, the glory of him. He says it both in, in 1 John 1, 1 to 4 and in, in John's gospel 1.14. One commentator says that these three were so overwhelmed by the experience as well they might be. Only in the post-resurrection situation will the scriptural witness to Jesus' suffering path to glory be illuminated to them, and only with the coming of the Holy Spirit will they be equipped to speak out. They didn't say anything to anyone in those days. It was so overwhelming to see Jesus in all his glory. Daryl Bach says, to fathom the transfiguration requires something other than words. It takes a new heart. A new heart leads us to sit at Jesus' feet, ready to listen 
and learn. Last week, Jesus sat down. We read the passage where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? Well, Moses, Elijah, one of the prophets. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. God's promise to set us free from all this oppression and to heal our people. In this passage today, they're up on the mountain and Peter is there again and he hears these words, this is my son, the one I am chosen, listen to him. Luke is concentrating this so that when we take the turn and we start marching to Jerusalem, we know that this is Jesus' divine appointed mission as Messiah, Son of God, the chosen one. And so it's time to make a decision. Will you listen to him? When we come to realize who Jesus is, we have to make a decision. He paints us into a corner. I have shown you who I am through every miracle and through my teaching and through the words that I am saying to you, through, through Peter's confession and through the voice of God on the mountain. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ of God. This is the Son of God. This is the Chosen One. Will you listen to him? It's a yes or no question. When we come to realize who Jesus is, we have to make a decision. And Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, revealed yet another element of who he is and what his sacrifice was going to mean. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, this is the blood, my blood of the covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The, the broken body and the blood of Christ symbolized in the bread and the, and the wine. Is, is an emblem that says, I, I cannot, out of myself, I cannot have the righteousness that this provides me. And there is nothing in me that gets the righteousness of Christ on me and covers me. It is only when I take in the righteousness of Christ. It is only when it comes to me from him that the righteousness is seen by God. That it replaces my sin and my mistakes and, and, and my failings. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so as we celebrate communion this morning, Luke has been leading us through every passage that we have studied to identify and to know who Jesus is so that we would be certain of what, what we have been taught about Jesus. And so as we come to communion this morning, this is it. This is the choice. Will you listen to Jesus? Yes or no? 
Will you let him define what it means for him to be Lord and Savior? The disciples had a long process of figuring that out. I don't think they figured it out until after the resurrection, the exaltation, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, John tells us that over and over. We didn't get it. We were completely confused. Only later did we figure it out. So Holy Spirit needed to lead and guide them and teach them. Lead them into all truth. See, they wanted a Jesus who would be political. They wanted a Jesus who would, who would make it so that they were in power, so that they could be in control of cancel culture. I think a lot of Christians are upset today because we're no longer in control of cancel culture. We're on the receiving end of it now. But it used to be, you know, historically, we were in charge of it. We could tell people what to do, and we could pass laws that made them obey us, even though they had no relationship with Christ, and we thought it was good. It just leads people to a false sense of security. It doesn't show them that they're sinful and in need of a Savior. Mandating morality isn't leading them to Christ. Jesus over and over challenged the religious people, you don't get it. You don't understand what I'm doing. You need my broken body and you need my blood or else you're lost. When you know who Jesus is, it comes down to decision. Will you listen to him or not? He defines the mission. He defines his identity. He defines your identity. And we're going to get into that in the new year. We're going to kind of pause on Luke. Next week we get into Advent. When we come back in January, we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a human being in God's image. The biblical theology of human identity. It's the biggest question of our day, and we need to tackle it. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Not your traditions. Remember, he's speaking to a bunch of Jewish people who thought they had it all figured out. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Let's pray, and we'll celebrate communion together. Lord Jesus, your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so is, are your ways different than our ways, and your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we see that over and over in the Gospels where the disciples wanted you to just, we're going to Jerusalem, excellent, we're going to kick out the Romans, we're going to get in charge. And you went there to die, and they were devastated. See that on the road to Emmaus. And so, Lord, even today, would you confront our arrogance that we've got it all right? Would you confront the, 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 the stuff in us that resists our need for your grace? Would you confront the, those things in us that says, yeah, we, we need Jesus, but then we can handle everything else? Would you confront those things in us that want the world to go our way 
so that it's convenient, so it's not troublesome. And when we look at what your call to discipleship actually is, unless you take up your cross daily and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Cannot is too weak a translation. It is absolutely impossible for you to be a disciple of Jesus and own your own life and call your own shots. So, Lord, we come to this table because we need to say yes to you and die to ourselves. We need a righteousness that comes from you, not from in ourselves, because in us there is nothing good. No one is righteous, not even one. No one who pursues God, no one who seeks his ways. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, Lord, we come humbly to the throne of grace to find grace and help in our time of need because we all need you. We all need the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ because it's not ours. We have no standing before you apart from the righteousness of Christ, but thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we come to you in faith and we say yes to you, and we surrender our lives to you. You give us your robe of righteousness and you clothe us with the glory of Jesus Christ and we become new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come and the king has done his work. We are now co-heirs with Christ waiting for the day of redemption and it's all because the exodus you accomplished in Jerusalem. So, Lord, we come to your cross this morning knowing our need and that you are the only hope. In Jesus' name, amen.